Hey, so good to be with you guys. And um, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm in heaven every time I gather here on a Sunday. I don't know about you, but this time of the year, things feel a little toily and... And then I come here and I actually get a little more dizzy because heaven is invading earth. <laughs> I'm like, whoo, am I in heaven already? It is quite outstanding what God is doing in our midst. I mean, by the way, you come in here, there's a life of God. It's not a bunch of people trying to whip up a frenzy. <laughs> so like we've planted enthusiastic people in our midst trying to infect the rest with, <laughs> it's not like a rent a crowd on those soap operas, like laugh. God is at work in our midst. You can feel his presence, and there's such a release of joy, and it's just so wonderful. I think we just need to realize God is doing something in our midst. I'm speaking today. Last week, Dave Child started the series called Generosity Gospel. So I've got to start with a confession. Generosity has not come naturally to me. Um, I think it has something to do with growing up a little bit of a in a family that didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> you just, you, you get into that survival mode. It's just a, a scarcity mentality, like there's not enough. So um, for me, when, when I've got money, I'm like, keep the money. <laughs> That's my basic instinct. I'm not a, a spender. I remember when Julie and I got married, we agreed that if you're going to spend a certain amount of money, you should just, you know, bounce it off each other. So we agreed, okay, if 300 bucks, just call the other person before you make the expense. 20, you know, 18, 20 years ago, so Julie comes home and she shows me all the stuff she's bought that day, like four outfits. And I'm like, it's really beautiful, Julie. I said, I'm just curious, what happened to our agreement about the, the conversation? She said, no, every item was less than 300 bucks. <laughs> but, I, but I remember I was 28 and Julie was 21 when we got married, but... um. She was just immediately a, a devoted person. It was just so wonderful to have a person, such a pure-hearted, whole human being, devoted to me. And I really enjoyed it. I, we went on a surf trip, and uh, there were a bunch of people there, and I'd surf, and I'd come back, and Julie would be there. I'd time with my girlfriend, and I'd sleep a little from the surf, eat some food, go for another surf, come back. My girlfriend's there. This was just amazing. And then Julie didn't seem to be enjoying it as much as me, so she gave me a little bit of a talking to as best she could. And she said, you know, Taryn, um, I put you first. So I nodded my head. I mean, it's true. She put me first. She said, but that makes two of us because you also put you first. <laughs> and um, 20 years later, I think I'm making a little bit of progress, but my goodness, uh, there are some setbacks, and I have many of these um, talkings too to alert me to the deep strains of selfishness that pervade my life. But um, I don't know of a better way to become a more generous person than to ponder God's generosity towards us. So signal, we've got a mission statement. We are stepping into the story of God and the ways of Jesus for the sake of Cape Town. The story of God is the story of God's uh, magnanimousness, magnanimity. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Magnanimity, no, not even going to try magnanimousness towards us. Uh, a dictionary definition, generous or forgiving, giving especially toward a rival or a less powerful person. Romans 8 verse 32 says, will not he who gave you his only son, not along with his son, graciously give you all things. The story of the gospel is the story of a God not treating us like our sins deserve. Generous. And then and in, in Signal, we're also stepping into the ways of Jesus. And, and Jesus, 
you, you know, you follow Jesus, one of the ways of Jesus is generosity. In Acts chapter 20, Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, there's a certain thrill that comes on your birthday when you get all these presents. Like, there's some blessing there, let's admit. Our kids, you know, latch onto it fairly rapidly. But it's more blessed to give, says Jesus. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 says, freely you've received, now freely give. Last week, Dave Child spoke about this kind of me-centered taker approach to life, where we live for comfort, convenience, consumerism, comparison. Um, but God actually wants us to be magnanimous. He wants us not to be a taker, but a giver. Generous with our time. Generous with our money. We give money to those in need. We give our money, some of our money to the cause of Christ. Generous with our home. So much of what's happening in Signal is the generosity of two families in particular that regularly open up their home. Uh, Lee and Rhea open up their home regularly. And there's like 15 or 20 of us invade at a time. Luke and Jen do the same. So much of this community is, the, is, the, is people saying, hey, my home is, is for the church, is for the gospel. Uh, generous in our relationships. Um, I don't know about you, but I've accumulated quite a lot of relationships. And you get a point, you're like, i got enough people in my life already. i got no more space. And then there's something of the spirit that comes into you and says, hang on, maybe there's space for a few more. Maybe you can make the circle a bit bigger. And, and especially, um, I know not all of you are Christians, but if you're a Christian, um, it, there's the temptation that you just fill up your life with Christian people. Whereas you're going to be like Jesus, you actually make space in your life for people far from God. Because if you don't, who's going to ever, you know, show them the love of God? Who's ever going to tell them about the love of God? And, 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 um, and then also generous in our moving towards difficult conversations, generous in our encouragement, generous in the sharing of spiritual gifts. Uh, one of our values as a church is prophetic. You know, we seek the prophetic. There's a team of people that actually pray, and they get together every second week, and they pray God, and they're stirring up gifts of prophecy. It's amazing how many people in this church have got developed gifts of prophecy. There's no one celebrity prophet in our midst, although Dave Child is pretty awesome with this gift. I mean, like, but, but lots of people. I think of last week, I was talking to somebody who said, you know, I came to this church, and um, what no one could know is that I've just recently started a chess business. I make chess boards. What fascinated me, someone walked up to me as I wanted prayer, and they said, you know, as I pray for you, I just see a chessboard. <laughs> what are the chances? To be a magnanimous person, I looked it up in the thesaurus, is to be generous, charitable, benevolent, open-handed, big-hearted, bountiful, liberal, kind, noble, unselfish, um, selfless, self-sacrificing, ungrudging, unstinting, forgiving, merciful. Much better than being mean-spirited and selfish. So now, you don't need God to be generous. I know plenty of people that don't know God who are generous, and they're inspiration. You don't need God to be generous, but you can't have God and not become more generous. You don't need God to be generous, but you can't have God and not become more generous. Um, there's some interesting secular studies on the field of generosity. There's a famous psychologist called Adam Grant. He's written a book called Give and Take. And uh, they analyze these business units, you know, teams of people working in businesses. And he says there's three kinds of people. There are takers, givers, and matches. A taker is someone who's self-focused. They only help st others strategically when it comes back to them in benefits. 
So they'll only give if the benefits outweigh the personal costs. Then you get the givers who are other focused, they pay more attention to what other people need from them. A very rare breed, says Adam Grant. And then you get the matches. The matches operate on the principle of fairness. When they help others, they protect themselves by reciprocity. If you're a matcher, you believe in tit for tat, and your relationships are governed by even exchange of favors. And uh, Adam Grant says, you know, you can actually be conscious. You don't just have to default. You might naturally be one of those, but you can be more conscious. Every time we interact with other, another person, we have a choice to make. Do we try to claim as much value as we can, or do we contribute value without worrying about what we receive in return? So what happens, uh, Adam Grant's they study these companies where there are givers. They say givers in a company or in a group of people transform group culture. Nathan Potsikoff and his team at the University of Arizona studied 3,500 business units. They found that companies with a culture of generosity and giving are more likely to have higher productivity, higher efficiency, and higher customer satisfaction. And interestingly, if you are a giver, in, you know, they identify these people that are just so giving, uh, either you work your way to the top or your way to the very bottom, which is an interesting result. <laughs> so givers either end up becoming the, the leaders or they're becoming, they're just, they're right at the bottom of the organization. And he says the difference is you get the givers who are not, that their giving is not married to wisdom. They're just compulsively givers. They can't say no. So they end up, um, you know, actually not delivering work because they try to help everybody else. And so it actually, it, it, it doesn't always work out for them in terms of the company. But the givers who marry generosity to wisdom tend to rise up in these, in these companies, these magnanimous people. And, and here's why, is when you've got a taker who's working their way up an organization, uh, people are a bit begrudging. You don't want a taker to be at the top. So you start trying to erode their leadership. But when a giver works their way to the top, you just feel like everyone wins because the giver is under-centered. So fascinating. When givers rise, everyone wins. When takers win, everybody loses. So what I want to do is you're going, okay, Terry, let's get back to the Bible here. Thanks for Adam Grant's contribution. But it is cool when you get social science studies that, like, you know, actually supports the teachings of Scripture and the, and the character of God. But um, I found a very cool part of the Bible where you've got a giver interacting with a taker. And I want to run through the story, and I want us to ward us away from the taker and towards the giver. I'm talking about the story of Abraham and Lot. Abraham is magnanimous, he's a giver. Lot is me-centered, he's a taker. Genesis chapter 13, it's 2000 B.C., Abraham has been called by God to leave for the promised land. God is directing him, and he takes his wife, and he also takes his nephew, Lot. And they're busy traveling through the promised land, being directed by God from step to step. They haven't inherited the promised land yet, but as they go along, they're experiencing God's blessing. Here goes the story, Genesis 13. Abraham, now wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold, went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife, and with Lot. From there they went from place to place until they returned to the place between Bethel and Ai, where he had first built an altar. There he called on the Lord's name. Now Lot, moving about with Abraham, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together. Quarreling arose between Abraham's herders and Lot's. So Abraham suggested, Lot, let's stop this quarreling between us, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. 
Here you've got Abraham. He is a magnanimous giver. And especially his, his magnanimousness is shown in the fact that he's dealing with a difficult person. Dealing with a difficult person. And, and I picked up uh, five little tips that we can learn from him about being more magnanimous. Number one, speak to God first. It says, there he called in the Lord's name. Before he talks to Lot, he drenches the matter in prayer. Now, when you've got problem people or problem situations, maybe just step back and get, just pray to God. And it just frees you up. It gives you some space even on the inside. You're less in a corner. You're more prone to be magnanimous. And then initiate respectful dialogue. Instead of just hoping the conflict goes away, he organizes a meeting to resolve the matter. And, and Jesus, interestingly, disciples his, his followers to move towards conflict and, and not to avoid it and not to slander those you have differences with. And uh, a question that we should ask ourselves probably every week is like, what difficult conversations are you avoiding? And uh, magnanimity moves towards these difficult conversations. And then thirdly, secure the other's dignity. I mean, they can't resolve this one. They they have a bit of a conflict. And Abraham, he has the power to destroy Lot. He can totally say this guy is just like a completely selfish man. But he he maintains Lot's dignity. Even when he can't see eye to eye with Lot, he tries to remain shoulder to shoulder in a space-giving relationship. And in our conflicts and disagreements with people... Try maintain the other person's dignity. A small person, a miserly person, tries to destroy that person, tries to diminish the other. And then Lot also chooses your ba- his battles. So choose your battles. So many uh, conflicts in the world, you can't fight all of them. There's so many causes you could get behind. Choose a few. And Abraham could rightfully say, Lot, you just leave. Go back from where you came. This land is mine. God said he's giving it to me. But there's a verse in 1 Corinthians where uh, there's somebody, a believer, who's suing another believer in the public arena. And Paul says, man, this is the worst outcome. And he says to the guy who's been wronged, he says, why not rather just be wronged? Why rather not be cheated? And he's he's not saying that it's wrong to pursue justice. He says, but just think about this. Is it really worth dragging this guy to court? You're going to destroy him, but you also, there's so much more happening here. Wouldn't it be better just to cancel the debt? Just say, that guy cheated me, but, you know. Release them. As Julie and I say to our kids when they get into a squabble, just let it go. Just let it go. Which reminds me of a friend whose little kid was sitting on the toilet with um, trying to have a poo, and he sings the song Frozen. Let it go! Let it go! That's how he gets into the mode. <laughs> and then number five, don't worry about coming out tops. Don't worry about coming out tops. Abraham says, there's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. He's saying, you choose. Look around. Which land do you want? I mean, that's quite amazing. Because he could have said, okay, I'm choosing this land. You can choose any of the rest. I mean, he's a magnanimous person. And um, I had a, a wonderful opportunity this year to be on a boat in Indonesia. And the guy who owns the boat, part of the reason he can co-own this boat is that he is a divorce litigationist. And uh, he explains that some of that boat was bought with scorched earth money. So he explained to us that sometimes people get divorced. And instead of parting amicably, uh, what happens is, let's say the wife says, hey, you actually need to give me a bit more money than you've given me. And the guy basically says, I'd rather spend every cent on legal fees than you ever getting a cent of it. I'd rather become completely poor than you getting a cent. And it's the scorched earth policy. It's the opposite of this magnanimous spirit. 
Where the heck did Abraham get the power to be this magnanimous? Hold that question. We're coming back to it. But let's take a look at Lot now, who is the taker. Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 to 13. Lot looked around and saw that the whole eastward plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt. So Lot chose it for himself, the two-parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, Lot among the cities of the plain. He pitched his tents near Sodom, whose people were sinning greatly against the Lord. So yeah, you've got Abraham who's generous, says, hey, what, what do you want? And Lot immediately takes the gap. He says, well, I know what I want. You can see the difference between a giver and a taker in this interaction. And uh, here's one of the things. God will either use you as an inspiring example or a tragic warning. He <laughs> can use you either way. An inspiring example or a tragic warning? Yeah, we are looking at Lot, who is a tragic warning. And uh, God's using him to help us. Like, this is how you shouldn't live. So how to become a me-centered taker? Four steps. Here we go. If you want to be like Lot, do these four things. Number one, decide without reference to God. Decide without reference to God. Make your decisions and don't reference God. It says, Lot looked around and saw. It doesn't say he looked up. He looked around. He decides on this huge matter of where he's going to plant his family, and he does it all in his own with his very limited insight. Number two, decide without reference to others. Decide without reference to God. Decide without reference to others. It says, so Lot chose it for himself. He only thinks of what will most benefit him. He takes no pause to consider what might be best for his wife or his daughters or for Abraham. And then number three, decide without reference to spiritual danger. Decide without reference for spiritual danger. Lot looks around and he notices these beautiful cities, these wonderful apartments on the plains, well watered. One of the cities is Sodom. Hello, the judgment of God is hanging over the city. But he's, he's, not, he's only looking on the surface of things. See, he sets up his family in a place that is going to be destroyed. Decide without reference to spiritual danger. Make your decisions without any discernment of the negative spiritual dimensions of this decision. And then one more thing, forget to build your own well. Forget to build your own well. So let me explain this one. When you meet Abraham and Lot, they're both two you know, men that are quite successful. And, and Lot has been with Abraham for, for a long time now. And as you meet them, you probably go, they're, they're, they're peers. But in this interaction, what you realize is that Abraham has a, a profound spirituality. He has built, dug his own well, his own spirituality. Ab Lot, who looks spiritual, is only spiritual by association. He hangs out with a guy who's built his own well that he gets to drink the water from. But the moment Lot gets further away from Abraham, you realize this guy hasn't built his own well. He has had a spirituality by virtue of association. And this is always a temptation in the church. We get into a community where there are quite a lot of people who are building a well, and have got this authentic spirituality, and by association, we drink from their wells, which is fine for beginners. We all start there. But quickly, you want to go, okay, how did you build your well? Because I need to build one of those for myself. Lot never does this. And you fast forward the story, you watch the demise of the man Lot. His life had started well. He shared in Abraham's call. He had ventured out with him to the land God was promising. I mean, he was Abraham's peer. But his lack of spiritual depth, his lack of building a well, became evident in his choices. 
In chapter 13, verse 12 of Genesis, it says he moved near the city of Sodom. Then by chapter 14, it says he moved into the city of Sodom. And then by, the, by, by chapter 18, you realize that he's imbibed the values of Sodom. Eventually, uh, fire falls. Abraham prays a prayer to get Lot out of there. Lot is rescued by Abraham's prayers. And it says that he fled the burning city. And instead of rejoining Abraham, he was afraid and he stayed near the small town of Zor, but he was afraid to stay in Zor, so then he moved into a little cave. His wife had died, and he brings up his daughters in a little cave somewhere. See, how you got a picture of a man who starts off in this big open land of possibility, and he lands up in a little cave. And here you got the picture of me-centeredness. Your life gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, um, the opposite of generosity is, is, is miserliness. And miserliness is the path to misery. But let's get back to Abraham. We're near the end of my message here. Where does Abraham get the power to be this magnanimous? Where does he get it from? Well, remember what we learned from Jesus. Freely you've received, freely give. Abraham is living under the generosity of God. And as he lives under the generosity of God, his life overflows in generosity to others. Listen to these verses in Genesis 13, verses 14 to 18. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted ways. So as far as Abraham's concerned, okay, he's lost the land. Lot's taken that land. He's just given it away. He must be a little heart sore. He's just lost his, his heir presumptive. Lot was meant to be the guy he was going to hand over to. God speaks to him and says, Abraham, look around from where you are to the land north, south, east, and west. All you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So if dust could be counted, then so your offspring could be. Go walk through the land's length and breadth. I am giving it to you. So Abraham went to live near the great trees of Marmara at Hebron. There he pitched his tents and he built an altar. So let me finish up my message by saying this. Where does Abraham get the power to be magnanimous? He gets it by God's encouragements. And God encourages him in three ways. God promises him expansiveness. God promises him expansiveness. Look around from where you are to the land, north, south, east, and west. All you see I will give to you. He's standing at, at, on the heights of Bethel. He enjoys this 360 degree, like, panoramic view of the land. And God says, Abraham is all yours, even the land that Lot has just claimed. It's all yours. And still today, God might give us an expansive vision of the kingdom. When I was 20, long time ago, I went to, <laughs> I went to a Bible college for three years called Cornerstone Christian College. And I, they had this guest speaker from Holland and he, he led this exciting international ministry. And, and I remember him sharing a story of how as a young man, he was try, thinking what to do with his life. So he went up to a mountain and he prayed. He said, God, show me the future. And then he says, God opened his eyes and he saw the vast plans of God's plan for his life. And he says, the whole world opened up to him. He went from being a small little guy you know, trying to find a girlfriend, trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life, to seeing the possibilities in God. I was so impressed by that. I remember just going, 
and afterwards I went and prayed similar prayers and I had a similar experience of just feeling like it's all coming my way. Nothing, to, you know, like that sense of um, unstoppability in God, that sense of possibility, that expansiveness. Here's Lot. He's so excited by his little real estate outside of Sodom. Abraham says, it's all yours. It is like there's some very expensive properties in the city. You could look at some of those properties, you know, higher up the mountain and go, wow, how cool it would be to own one of those properties. Well, just take your eye off the property, look up at the mountain behind it. The mountain is yours. It really helps you not be envious about the little real estate. <laughs> the mountain is yours. The Corinthian church that the apostle Paul was pastoring got into starting to squabble around pettiness. And Abraham says, I mean, Abraham, Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 3, everything is yours, whether Paul or Peter or the world or life or death, all are yours. There's a time when God says, just go to the top of the mountain and get the 360 degree view. Get big inside. Your life has got so small, you become so petty. Like David says in Psalm 19, God has brought me out into a spacious place. And it really does require a work of God, especially when we've been wounded, we can become small, we can land up in a cave, we can nurse our wounds, we can live in the constant memory of the people who have broken us, who let us down, and our lives get trapped. How much we need the ministry of the Spirit just to take us to the top of the mountain and says, look around, 360 view, it's all yours. There's an expansiveness that comes over a life in the kingdom. And then secondly, God uh, doesn't only promise him expansiveness, God promises him multiplication. Multiplication, he says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Interestingly, the word offspring there uh, could be both singular or plural. So, uh, you know, Bible scholars go, okay, how does that promise to Abraham get fulfilled in the Bible? In four ways. Firstly, God is referring to Abraham that Isaac is coming. Abraham's going to have Isaac. That's, that's who his offspring's going to be. But then there's a second layer of fulfillment. In fact, all of the descendants of Isaac, will, you know, the Jewish people, they, they're also promised. But then there's a third fulfillment. The seed refers to Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus Christ is the ultimate seed through which the blessing of multiplication comes. And then there's a fourth fulfillment. All those who put their faith in Jesus are a part of the offspring. So it refers to Isaac, refers to all the Israelites, refers to Jesus, refers to all Jesus' followers. The very fact that we're all in the room this morning is a fulfillment of a promise God made to this man as he stood up on a mountain looking around. And when God makes a promise over your life, the future of the world changes. There is a word I believe God has spoken over this community, and it's the word multiply. Between signal on whatever day we are now and signal in the future, there is a word, multiply. I prophesy that there'll come a time, we'll look back, and we'll go, how did we get from there to here? And the answer is, God spoke the word multiply. That's how we got here. And then lastly, God gives us a foretaste of what's promised. God gives us a foretaste of what's promised. You know, Abraham was promised the land, but he never actually got to have the land. What he did is he just built altars. 
like, like, like you know, almost like putting his stake. Like, yeah, this, this is mine. And the little altar would be like, that's, that's his real estate. This tiny little, like, little altar that he built somewhere. That altar might have seemed small, but how significant? Because it was a token of what's yet to come, a foretaste. In the New Testament, God says that he has given us the Holy Spirit as a token, as a stake of our future eternity. When God pours out his spirit upon us as followers of Jesus and as a community, it's a foretaste of the glory to come. Have you ever been singing to Jesus? Your eyes are closed and then you go, if I open my eyes now, I might be in heaven. And you open, you're like, oh no, still these people. It's a foretaste. The joy that we experience when we sing. The feeling of God's presence enveloping us. This is a foretaste of what's to come in eternity, but I want to suggest it's also a foretaste of what's to come for our church. I've been in the, in, in the church world since I was 16 years old, and you get to sense like unusual moments in a church. I, I think that what's happening in Signal is unusual. The, the outpoured presence upon us Sunday after Sunday is unusually intense. And it gets me wondering, what, is, what, is, if, what does this mean? Because there's actually another place in the Bible where you've got 120 people in an upper room, and this unusual presence of God comes upon them. And it's so wonderful in the moment. I'm talking about Acts chapter 2. But as you read Acts chapter 3, all the way around Acts chapter 28, you realize that the outpoured presence of God upon that community in upper room was a foretaste of what was to come. Because basically, God is releasing a fire and blowing it along by His spirits. The fire that rests upon this community, the wind of the spirit that blows upon us, speaks about a bright future. So Signal Church, I want to prophesy that your future is so bright and that what we're tasting now is just a foretaste of what's to come. God is pouring out His Spirit upon us because He plans to blow the glory of Jesus far and wide like a raging felt fire in the Spirit. And when we think like that, it brings a bigness into us, a magnanimity, a place where people can get whole, a place where people can find their ministries and find themselves and find relationships and find wholeness, find the kingdom. Can I ask us to stand? Can we have the band up? Why don't we sing, sing some, and also invite the presence of the Spirit here. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Be poured out in our midst. Be poured out in our midst. Even as we worship, we're building an altar that is a, is a little um, stake in the land of what's to come, of what's to come. as I start to pray, I'm reminded of the parables of Jesus where there's this banquet prepared. There's so much food, far more food than, than can feed the people in the room. And then messengers are sent out to just invite anyone. Come, come, come. There's a banquet. And our signal is going to be a banquet that invites people to the feast. And maybe there's some of you that are new to church or back in church after a long time. Can you feel that invitation to the banquet? 
Can you feel that invitation to the lavish kindness of God in Jesus Christ? Because if you can feel it, it's because it's true. You are invited to the banquet. Come on in. Even where you are, I urge you to, to say, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, you, you be my Savior. You be my Lord. Even today, today come to the banquet. Today, put your life in Jesus' hands. Today, take him as your Lord and your Savior. And, and can I just ask if, you, if that's you? Today's your day of coming home or coming home after a long time. You just lift up your hand so I know who I'm praying for. Just lift up your hand. That's you. Wonderful. Anyone else? Just lift it up high. Praise God, eh? You can put your hands down. Can I just guide you in a simple prayer? Jesus, I'm coming home. Jesus, I'm coming home. You can pray that on your breath. Take me into your family. Take me into your kingdom. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. 